Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. On today's show, we have two old friends coming back to talk about a book written by one of those two old friends. Liliana Douglas is the official movie star of The Colin McEnroe Show, and she was so passionate about the idea of a book about movies that are set in Connecticut, movies that evoke Connecticut, that she moved back to Connecticut. Just, you know, I don't know, sort of, it was like sort of method nonfiction writing. Anyway, her book is out now. It's terrific. It's fun. It's interesting. David Edelstein is America's greatest living film critic. He, of course, is the person we have to talk to about these movies as well. And nothing too serious here today, although that might be sort of an illusion. So sit back and wait until after the news and we'll find out whether it is. So this is an episode that I was really looking forward to, and now it's happening, except I'm going to be honest with you. We're actually taping this a few days ahead of when you're going to hear it. We have been talking about this for quite a while. When I say we, Ileana Douglas is the official movie star of The Colin McEnroe Show. She has written a book called Connecticut in the Movies, From Dream Houses to Dark Suburbia. The book is out. She is here along with America's Greatest Living Film critic, David Edelstein. And we're just going to give you kind of a little, we're going to kind of like Burt Lancaster, just dip our toes into the swimming pool of this book. There's no way we, we could take you through everything. But before we even get started, let's just say that sometimes Connecticut is the setting for a movie, and sometimes Connecticut is kind of just sort of a name people say. So I was actually the other night with my son re-watching the cinematic classic Jaws, and I had forgotten this. Nobody saw her go into the water? Somebody could have. I was sort of passed out. You mean she ran out on you? No, sir. She must have drowned. Look, I reported to you, didn't I? You live here? No, Hartford. I go to Trinity. My folks live in Greenwich. But your folks were born here, right? Yeah, I'm an Islander. They moved off when my dad retired. You an Islander? No, New York City. You here for the summer? Come on. Because, of, of course, so many people are born in Martha's Vineyard, work their whole lives there, and then retire to Greenwich. <laughs> it's such an obvious retirement destination. It's amazing that Peter Benchley was the first person to think of it. So let's get started here, though, and let's just talk a little bit uh, about some of the stuff that's in the book. And Ileana, I think you have to tell us something about the genesis of this book. It almost feels at times as though you moved back to Connecticut because of this book, as opposed to the other way around. Yes, that is absolutely true. It always percolated in my head, this kind of uncomfortableness of when people said, oh, you're from Connecticut. And what does that mean? You know, and then throughout the years, I would throw it in, in different films I was in, that my character was from Connecticut. Well, so are you really determined about moving back to Connecticut? Well, I've thought about it a lot. I just think it's going to be the best thing. Oh, uh, yeah, I kind of... I thought that maybe I could go back to school. Mm. I'm really going to miss you, though. Yeah. Oh, right. Excuse me. 
because uh, it always means something. I'm not quite sure what. So it percolated in my head. But then when COVID began and I was in Los Angeles, I sat down to write this book. And as I was writing about the book, I found myself at night scrolling through Zillow, <laughs> looking at farmhouses and thinking, you know, maybe a life in Connecticut would work. I could work on the book. And so I think I was seduced by my own subject matter. And by midway through the book, I purchased an old farmhouse. I, a Yankee realtor convinced me to buy a money pit. And I find myself in Connecticut, Mrs. Blandings, then writing about Blandings builds his dream house. So I truly is a book that is not only about Connecticut, but was written in Connecticut. So it's it's my love letter to the state. So, you know, David, there are ways in which Connecticut is sometimes evoked just as sort of a placeholder for a certain kind of idea. And often when Connecticut comes up in the movies, the more that you know about Connecticut, the more jarring you're going to find the reference uh, in this movie, Ocean's 12. Julia Roberts and George Clooney have settled down in East Haven. You know what we haven't thought of? What's that? We turn ourselves in. What could Benedict do to us then? There you go. Call the cops. Tell them we did the Bellagio job. Put us away for 20 years. That'd teach him. I think Tess would stick around. You look great in jumpsuit. How's the hotel business? Sucks. How's East Haven? Sucks. Except that we have some shots of East Haven, and it's kind of tony and quaint, and it's kind of not the gritty East Haven that we know of, where, in fact, <laughs> occasionally the FBI has to come in and, and the Justice Department has to take over the town because of discrimination and stuff like that. And, and David, there is a way in which Connecticut is Guilford, is Litchfield, is the town green with a beautiful white Protestant church, whether or not that makes any sense. Well, it doesn't make any sense, but sense rarely has anything to do with the movies, which are <laughs> more more about what is said in our imagination. Connecticut symbolizes, you could, you could call this book My Own Private Connecticut because it's really set in the imaginations of filmmakers and artists more than it is in the, the real Connecticut, although certainly it exploits the landscape and the architecture in some cases, though not all. Connecticut will always be seen in relation to New York. It is not urban, it is not the city, and it is not the jungle. It is supposed to offer everything that New York doesn't. Certainly in a lot of the movies that Ileana writes about in the first section of the book, it offers that to people who don't have to worry about money and who are simply beginning to go mad and are looking for a, a simpler and more bucolic way of life. And some movies, I would say the less interesting, they find a simpler, happier more easy form of life in Connecticut. Others, Connecticut comes to symbolize everything that suburbia is, which is false. It's anti-nature. It's anti-history. It's an attempt to take us out of history and out of nature and out of the global economy. It says, don't worry about these things. This is the future of America. You know, the revenge of the repressed, the revenge of the forgotten tends to bubble up in some of the best movies that Ileana writes about. I must say, reading through this book and seeing the, the, the beautiful illustrations and reading her accounts of the movies, both in, on the screen and behind the screen, it made me go places in my mind that I never ever went to growing up in West Hartford, Connecticut. Yeah, I, I have to say, I, going into this, I would have said that I probably knew 
a bunch about Connecticut in the movies. It turns out I know like 1% of what there is to know. There's so much in this book and it's really fascinating. But yeah, Ileana, to David's point, there is that sense sometimes where Connecticut is the place that's not New York. This is from Rope, one of two Alfred Uh, Hitchcock movies that reference Connecticut. uh, Mrs. Wilson, champagne. Oh, it it isn't someone's birthday, is it? Don't look so worried, Kenneth. It's uh, really almost the opposite. The opposite? Uh, Phillip's uh, bidding the world a temporary farewell tonight. I- I'm driving him up to Connecticut after the party. Oh, where are you going? Just to Brandon's mother's place for a few weeks. So I think what we sometimes hear is, and it's kind of interesting because I think if the characters in a movie are from New York, to David's point, Connecticut is maybe a place where you go where some of the rules and constraints of New York are relaxed a little bit or you're just out of sight of other people. Well, this was the this was the riddle that I was trying to unsolve. And that is the perfect clip to listen to, because the original characters that Rope is based on, Leopold and Loeb, were from Chicago. But in this instance, Alfred Hitchcock decides that they're from Yale. And why did that somehow make it a little bit more sinister that they're going up to the country house? in Connecticut. You know, it's this punctuation. It conveys something that is beyond New York or Boston, where both, this is what was fascinating to me, were both very idyllic, transformational things happen, and very dark, sinister things happen. And since we all live here and grew up here, have we experienced both the sinister you know, and the transformation. And I I say that we do. There is a Brigadoon-like quality that you can't explain. But then there's also that undercurrent of old money, bourgeoisie, suburbia, dark suburbia. And that light and dark fascinated me. Yeah, and you know, there's... I'm now about to read into... A Doris Day Rock Hudson movie. More content may, than may actually be there. Oh, man. You, you're way behind. They've been doing that for uh, 50 <laughs> or 60 years now. Okay. Well, a so... lot of modern college courses are based on that very premise. <laughs> let us look at the underside of Doris Day and Rock Hudson. All right. But not literally at their undersides. But <laughs> so in Pillow Talk, you know, they've kind of gotten in this little trap where neither one of them is entirely being frank with one another about who they are. And at a certain point, Rock Hudson goes to creepy Tony Randall's cabin. But the whole idea is the truth can come out there because they're not in New York anymore. They're in Connecticut. You're leaving? Mm-hmm. When? Tonight. I have to mosey up to Connecticut. Didn't I tell you? No. No, you didn't. Oh, well, this friend of mine, a business associate, has a house up there. And How long will you be away? A weekend. It's going to be mighty lonely up there. Connecticut is kind of off stage somehow where you can do other things. Yes. I love it. I don't know. I, you know, it's funny. I'm looking at this from a very different perspective. You know, I believe I've heard that the history of movies has something to do with Jews. And uh, for Jews living in New York, who were the children of immigrants or immigrants themselves, Connecticut was a world that they dreamed about and that they couldn't necessarily inhabit. I mean, when my parents moved to uh, West Hartford, there were still a lot of places that Jews couldn't build and a lot of country clubs that Jews couldn't join. So Connecticut, this waspy fantasy 
of this place where you go to avoid the stresses of the urban jungle, you know, the shanties and the ghettos, the slums, that was a creation of, you know, many of my people, I'm afraid. The other Connecticut that they may have found, the Connecticut of, you know, let's scare Jessica to death, you know, the the the, the old Yankee sort of wasp rot Connecticut with the, the sort of the crumbling old buildings and the ghosts, the ghostly graveyards. That was a shock to them when they finally got here, many of them. <laughs> yes, what I see, what I tried to do with the with the book is show the how the perception changes. So with a film like Mr. Blandings, they sold you on Connecticut that not only was it a place to live, it was, to David's point, the right place to live with the right kind of people. But after Blandings, you do get this shift in films where you get Gentleman's Agreement, which speaks to David's point of restrictive communities, covenants. In answer to your question, may I inquire, are you? Uh, that is, uh, do you follow the Hebrew religion yourself? Or is it that you just want to make sure? I've asked a simple question. I'd like to have a simple answer. Well, you see, we do have a very high-class clientele, and, uh, well, naturally. Then you do restrict your guests to Gentiles. Well, I would say that, Mr. Green. But in any event, there seems to be some mistake, because we don't have a free room in the entire hotel. And then suburbia gets even darker with the man in the gray flannel suit where it's attacking upward mobility. And then as we get to the swimmer, you know, it is the destruction of the American family. And then I my contention with the book is that when we get into the horror films, now Connecticut is seen as you move to the country for the myth of a better life. And guess what? you find out there are zombies in your house. And now Connecticut, from this point on, becomes a very sinister kind of a place. And I found that journey to be very interesting because I think, again, going back to the light and dark, it offers both. Yeah, and so I guess we should take, take a minute because I'm not sure everybody even knows the movie that you're referencing. It's called Mr. Blandings Builds His Dream House. So this is about people from the city who do build their dream house in Connecticut. It's actually based on, we learn all about this in the book, but it's actually based on somebody who really did this. There they are, two little fish from New York out in the deep, deep waters of Connecticut real estate. That's Smith, the real estate salesman. Mighty shrewd cookie in a quiet sort of way. Yes, sir, he knows a sucker. I mean, customer, when he sees one. He sees one. <laughs> and so, you know, David, there is a little bit of the vibe <laughs> of sort of the Green Acres series that was to come. There's a standing trope about the person from the city who thinks he or she wants to live in the country and that the people in the country will be these kind of plain-spoken, honest yokels. And this turns out to be a much more complicated thing. I think we see it with Diane Keaton in Vermont in Baby Boom. I mean, you see that idea a lot. But maybe it starts here, David? I think it certainly might in movies. I mean, yeah, we've always romanticized. Well, look, characters in movies are all... Most of them are romantics, and most of them learn the hard way that they're, whatever they have in their dreams bears very, very little relationship to the real world. And as we moved into the 60s and 70s, as Ileana points out in her book, 
there were movies filmed in the silent era in Connecticut, surprisingly enough, but a lot of what was presented to us as Connecticut in the 30s, 40s, 50s, it was all built on sound stages in Hollywood. By the time movies started to go on location for various reasons and become more documentary-like in their settings, the culture had changed, you know, scarily. And that's the Connecticut, the, the real Connecticut that we were introduced to in the, the mid-60s, the late 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, th first through movies like like The Swimmer. But to go again to Mr. Blandings, Mr. Blandings is a really fun movie. I mean, it's the idea is that suburbia is a tease, that anybody who thinks that they're going to be able to control their life when they move into their own house, their own yard. <laughs> Here I am, I'm stuck in a building in the urban jungle. I'm at the mercy of my neighbors. I'm at the mercy of my handyman, my janitor. I'm in, I'm going to go to my own space, like a true American, have my own, my own acre of land. They're going to find that that's actually, thanks to our capitalist system, <laughs> it's all built on a lie. It's built on a lie about, about history. It's built on a lie about the material world. Uh, what is your professional opinion? Tear it down. Tear it down? If your sills were shot and your timbers was okay, I'd say go ahead, fix her up. If your timbers were shot and your sills was okay, again, I'd say go ahead and fix her up. But your sills are shot and your timbers are shot. So I say don't throw good money after bad. Tear it down. Good day. You know, you notice when you go to a lot of these suburban developments, the streets are named after, you know, native wildlife that were exterminated in order to make room for the uh, the suburban developments. So so the whole thing represents a kind of lie. And Mr. Blandings, the satirical view of Mr. Blandings was very important and very influential. Yeah. And so, uh, Ileana, this movie in some ways is unapologetically capitalist in the way that it was put together. This is a movie from 1948. So you're really sort of seeing one of those first exhibitions of post-war affluence and the commercial tie-ins up to and including being able to get a blueprint of the house if you send in like a Kellogg's box top somewhere. I mean, say some more about just how many things came together commercially behind this movie. Well, I want to go back just briefly just to say how much we need to embrace Blandings because this is truly a Connecticut film. Eric Hodgins lived in New Milford. He wrote the book about his own experience of home building and the producer of the film, Dory Sherry, just had taken over RKO. He knew my grandfather. He got my grandfather involved in the film. So he snapped up the rights to the book before it even became a movie. So again, you have people that genuinely were living in New Milford about a real house and a real experience. Then obviously it's built on a soundstage. But then when the, the promotion of the movie was done by this genius named Paul McNamara, who put the whole film is back to back, you know, Cary Grant is driving a Ford and they're eating Kellogg cereal. And as you mentioned, part of the selling of the American dream, the post-war American dream was that you could buy plans to the house and all over America, people were building a Blandings house. You could live a lifestyle just like Cary Grant and Myrna Loy, and that there still exists to this day, I photographed two of them, there's four Blandings houses in Connecticut. So this is one of these marvelous 
ideas where a movie, you know, actually promoted house building and people really built these houses and builders got into it. Some of the houses had bomb shelters in them <laughs> and they filled, they used to, uh, you know, fill because there's, I found one of the tours that my grandfather did in Texas, you could go into a model landings home and it had carpeting and silverware and everything that you saw in the movie GE provided the refrigerator and the oven in fact GE was angry at the film when they saw the film that they didn't see enough of the oven and so they went back and did a reshoot so you could actually see more of the kitchen which was filled with GE appliances so this is why it's one of my favorite movies because it's saying so much about not only Connecticut society and culture, but um, where America was in post-war. All right. So we're going to pause there for a second. We're going to take a very, very short break here, and we will be back in just a handful of minutes right after this. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. We're back. And by we, I mean Ileana Douglas, the official movie star of The Colin McEnroe Show, David Edelstein, America's Greatest Living Film Critic. They're both here with us to talk about Ileana's new book, Connecticut in the Movies, From Dream Houses to Dark Suburbia. So we're going to go over to Dark Suburbia now. And it's a shorter walk for some of us than others. But I think a good way to do this is to start right in 1968 with a very unusual movie. I think it would be weird even today, if it were released. The movie is called The Swimmer, starred Burt Lancaster. Ileana, this movie, which is based on a John Cheever story, is weird. (laughs) And it's really, really different from Mr. Blanding's. This is not an aspiration anymore. It's more of a trap that you live in suburbia where the swimming pools form a, a chain that's like a river that you can swim to get to your destination. Well, don't you see? I just figured it out. If I take a sort of a dog leg to the southwest, I can swim home. Come on, Ned. (laughs) (laughs) Why would you want to swim home? I don't get it. Pool by pool, they form a river all the way to our house. Well, I suppose you could put it that way. I'll call it the Lucinda River, after my wife. That's quite a tribute. This is the day Ned Merrill swims across the county. 
you know, Burt Lancaster said it best, I think, when he, he referred to the swimmer as death of a salesman in, in bathing trunks. And the film is not only the deconstruction of the myth of superior living in Connecticut. What also fascinates me about the film directed by Frank Perry is uh, the deconstruction of Burt Lancaster as a movie star. And part of the reason I put him on the cover is it's such a provocative image and he's wearing a bathing suit that is strikingly similar to the bathing suit that he wears in From Here to Eternity. And so he came to Connecticut. Again, this is why it's almost a cornerstone of the book. Burt Lancaster came from Hollywood to Connecticut to film this movie in Westport and Fairfield. And this is a movie to me that represents the bourgeoisie of America at this time. You know, the rich folks that moved in the class system, the drinking, you know, drinking on the on the weekends. But it's about his fall from grace and no other place, I don't think, except for possibly Hollywood, punishes a man for losing his job and losing his way. And he's sort of the nowhere man of the 60s. And I mean, I could talk about the movie all day long. I just, when I first saw it, when I worked for a publicist named Peggy Siegel and Frank Perry, we shared offices and I had a little bit part in one of his movies and he gave me the movie to look at and to study. And I'd never really seen a movie so far that I, I really related to in growing up in Connecticut. And again, that feeling in the movie that somehow mysteriously you are not in the club and you don't know how to get in the club. And, but yet everybody else seems to know you, you're not in the club. And it's, it, there is that as there's so many other things in the book you know, that are for for movies for everyone. But this one describes that particular feeling that we sometimes get that we don't quite belong. David, I'm wondering, too, what you see there, particularly it's a tra- it is a translation of Cheever's very, very dark take on this thing that had seemed so attractive 20 years before, so promising 20 years before. Are there specific things that you see kind of leaking out of that dream or out of Burt Lancaster's bathing suit at the same time? (laughs) I never thought that that story could be filmed because it's really, I don't think, meant to be taken literally. I mean, I think you're seeing years go by as this man is swimming and you're seeing a whole life falling apart in front of your eyes as you're imagining him going from pool to pool. Damn you, no! I lied! I lied all the time about loving it anywhere with you. You bored me to tears with all your stories about your old deals and your old girls and your golf scores and your bloody war and your bloody duty, your wife and kids. You bored me to tears. I was playing a scene with you. You love me. You met your match in me, you suburban stud. I was acting. The film, as Ileana points out, is flawed. There are scenes that are stronger than others. There were scenes that were reshot by Sidney Pollack, although I think, as she makes the case, some of those scenes are actually quite powerful and probably improved the film. But it's a profoundly alienating film. It really was at the height of what some of my friends call Burt Lancaster's weird period, where he started <laughs> working with brilliant, very strange directors, pushing himself out of his From Here With Eternity yes. sort of kinds of role, testing that persona. David, you I know, want to ask uh, you about one specific thing. Out. Because it's Cheever, because it's Fairfield County or whatever that's supposed to be, it's pretty waspy. 
except that he has this very interesting conversation with this woman who's pretty obviously Jewish. And if we had any doubt about it, the woman is Joan Rivers. Yeah. <laughs> what, what do you think that scene is, David? I mean, you were talking before in our conversation about the reality of Jews coming to Connecticut, maybe versus the wasp reality of Connecticut. What do you think is going on in that little scene? As a, as a Jew, it frazzles me a lot watching that scene on, on so many levels. So I don't, <laughs> I don't really know. She, clearly, she is an outsider, much as he is. But she's wearing all her clothes and he's he's naked the way we are in dreams where we suddenly find ourselves in a place where we don't belong and we're not we're not wearing any clothes. What do you think, Ileana? Well, he shows up. I love is one of my favorite scenes. Again, he shows up, you know, at these people's house and he says, these are people that didn't even make our Christmas card list. And they're and they're telling me I crashed their party. You know, like that is that feeling that unknown, even the bartender at the party knows that he has lost his place in society. And the only person who doesn't know is the Joan Rivers character. And she's sort of talking him up, you know, because he's an available wealthy man. Like she's been invited there to probably, you know, to find a husband. And she gets the signal from someone at the party. He's not somebody you want to be talking to. And they all kind of back up from him. <laughs> what was your first clue? The fact that his, his, their, his naked torso is on display at this party like everybody else's. Yeah, I actually see her. She's almost a little anthropological in her, her exploration of him. You, uh, you married? What's that got to do with it? You divorced? What? You want to come with me? Where? Along a river of sapphire pools. I never heard anyone talk like you. Come with me. Be my love. <laughs> that I've heard before. Not for me. You're no different than any other guy. Oh, but I am. Gives it a little bit of a Joan Rivers twist of the knife, too. Oh, my gosh. It's the way we were in Embryo. <laughs> there it is. Exactly. There it is. Ooh, I like it. I like what you just did there. So... I just want to ask both of you about this. This is maybe my only real contribution to this conversation. You guys know so much more about it than I do. And one thing I will say about this is there's so much in this book. We are going to scratch a tiny, tiny bit of the surface of this book. There's there's whole themes and areas of this book we won't have time to get into. But it made me think of a guy that I used to know. He died quite a few years ago now. His name was Bruce Fraser, and he ran the Connecticut Humanities Council and operated out of Wesleyan and was really one of the most thoughtful people about Connecticut that I have ever spoken to. And one thing that he said was that this idea of Connecticut, the idea of Connecticut that you see in the movies, whether it's Mr. Blanding's or The Swimmer or many of these other depictions of affluence or white picket fence suburbia or escape from New York to the countryside, he felt sort of ran counter to the actual history of Connecticut, which he said was dominated in an awful lot of ways by industry, light industry, industrial development, by people who came here to work in, in, in factories all up and down the Naugatuck Valley and other towns around here like Meriden, Plainville, New Britain, and that that was completely absent or almost completely absent 
from depictions in movies. We can talk about a couple of exceptions to that that are uh-huh. uh, well covered in this book. You no, know, I'll, yeah. I'll tell you. I'll tell you one thing that that Eliana writes about in her book, and that <laughs> looms very, very large for me. I think when when Jane Fonda made the mistake of thinking that Stanley and Iris would look great in Waterbury, Connecticut, <laughs> really the Hanoi Jane label slur made its comeback really after being under the rug for 15 or 20 years this was in the middle of the of the reagan era and the outcry when they were filming this movie about a blue collar man who doesn't know how to read and who keeps his his dark secret what do you think i'm upstairs chewing on a dead cigar i got a bookkeeper and maybe she's got bad breath but she's got good eyes what happened to my mayonnaise what happened to my 150 pounds of coffee? What happened to my tuna fish? Come on. Who's getting fat off of me? It isn't Stanley Cox. Who are you? What do you know? You know something I don't know? He can't read and he can't write. So it isn't him. And it's this heartwarming movie uh, about uh, Jane Fonda teaching him how to read and freeing him, freeing him from the economic quicksand that he's found himself in as a result of his new literacy. Jane Fonda discovered that there was a whole country out there that really, really hated her. Your pal Colin John Rowland was very much a part <laughs> of that movement at the time, driving and trying to stop the film, the takeover of Hanoi Jane, of this God-fearing city. It's quite a story, and it's quite a. It does run counter, indeed, to the myth of Connecticut in other movies. Yeah, you know, and and Ileana, I think another place that this happens, that the more kind of industrial or gritty side of Connecticut happens, is sometimes in, as you point out, crime movies. You talk about a movie called Bristol Boys, which was made for like half a million bucks or something, which is set in Bristol. And there's even a kind of transmogrification of the Peter Riley story, which actually happened in Falls Village out in the country, but it's called Everybody Wins. And it is, I think, in it's also something a little Waterbury-like, right? Yes. Again, part of the reason I wanted to write the book and then speaking briefly about Stanley and Iris is I always as a writer, you know, it's the same approach I take with acting. I'm looking at the film. Yes, sometimes these movies are flawed, but I'm looking at it from the viewpoint of I wanted to tell the storied history of Waterbury and, you know, how Martin Ritt, the director, said, I was looking for an abandoned town with an abandoned feeling. And that line hit me. And so I not only write about the movie, I talk about the heyday of the brass industry, of the button factory. And so that is what, you know, permeates the in movie after movie, whether it was Norwich, which we're now talking about, everybody wins, the invention of the the thermos and the lunch pail and all, you know, all of these great mill towns, Johnsonville, which is where they had twine, Danbury, which was where, you know, the hat capital and all of that is sadly it's gone, but yet the history of it is still here and we can still visit it and embrace these parts of Connecticut that aren't just what we're known for suburbia you know, everybody wins again, has so many little arteries of it was written by Arthur Miller, who goes back to the film Boomerang. He was, you know, he was in Boomerang. He's he lives in Roxbury. And so he writes, he becomes involved with the Peter Riley murder case, which again to this day is unsolved. And Norwich is just this forgotten 
town. It's just, it's a beautiful town. It's an industrial town. And it's where they chose, they specifically chose Norwich to shoot this murder story of everybody wins. It's not entirely, you know, successful, but it's a very interesting film. What was the first notification you had of your uncle being murdered? Um, I read it in the paper. And what happened next? These two Boston detectives come around and they go, can we look at your comb, sir? I give it to them. And the next day I'm under arrest. I'll be quick, Felix. I'd like to listen. Listen to him. In the house that night, can you remember, did you comb your hair? You mean like right in front of my uncle? Well, what about in the bathroom? They found the tooth of my comb in the living room and right next to the body, for God's sake. Not in their first report, only days later in their second search. What are you saying, that it, was, that it was moved there? Possible. Everybody Wins, I just want to say, is really worth seeing. It's a very powerfully unsatisfying movie, which I think makes it unique in Arthur Miller's work because he always tries to tie things into neat bows, and towards the end, he was he was loosening them up. And uh, it's an extraordinary movie with Nick Nolte and Deborah Winger that leaves you feeling extremely helpless and, and pessimistic about the future of small towns, the future of suburbia, the future of cities, the future of truth, of ever being able to get to the bottom of anything. That may be the the legacy that that we're left with from Connecticut in the movies. Yes. You know, Eliana, they, we've never had the great Danbury hat movie. Someone <laughs> up there has got to make a movie about Hat City, probably, and, and you know, probably- it would it would have people going insane from the mad hatters all over the place from all the chemicals that were being ingested inhaled by the hatters but i've always been very interested in in that aspect of danbury as i've spent much time there i will say that having lived in connecticut my whole life i've talked to peter riley and i've talked to arthur miller about peter riley i mean it's sort of that much a part of the wallpaper around here you almost couldn't avoid it for decades really so we're going to grab a really quick break here and we will come back and we will talk a little bit more about Connecticut in the movies. All episodes of The Colin McEnroe Show are available 24-7 on any podcast app. If there's a place for reviews and ratings, give us lots of stars and be sure to mention the high thread count in our sheets and pillowcases, as well as the complimentary breakfast buffet. Have a question or comment? Email us at colinshow at ctpublic.org. Now, back to the show. We are back. The technical producer of this show today is the very freezing cold cat pastor. We're getting her a space heater tomorrow. And the producer of this is Jonathan McPants. With us are Ileana Douglas, author of Connecticut in the Movies, From Dreamhouses to Dark Suburbia. She's also the official movie star of the Colin McEnroe Show. David Edelstein is America's greatest living film critic and hard at work on his Danbury screenplay right now. Mad Hatters will probably come to the theaters around 2026. So 
Just because we've got David here, we've got to talk a little bit about something that, Ileana, you deal with in the – we've already kind of referred to it, but you deal with it in the book, which is Connecticut as a horror locale. I mean, this isn't just one or two movies, right, Ileana? There's like, <laughs> there's like a lot of Connecticut is a place where you go and, as you said earlier, you buy a house and there's zombies or ghosts or something even worse in them and you, you don't know how to look up the phone number of the Warrens who live in Connecticut and you don't know how to get rid of them. Exactly. Well, is Dave, I'll let David go first. Oh. Well, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm the horror buff. So yes. I, I sort of came of age with these horrible movies like Last House on the Left, which was shot in Connecticut, yes. and the, the much more artful and spooky Let's Scare Jessica to Death. This very extraordinary open-ended, sort of shockingly ambiguous mood piece filmed in Chester and I guess East Haddam and also, yeah. also Essex at the at the Witch Hazel Mansion. It's there are very few glimpses in movies. I think of the so-called quiet corner of Connecticut, or, or or some of those places, and it's it's not anything that's going to make you want to move there. So I don't know that that people in these towns should should use the film as an advertisement. It, but it creates a Connecticut that is one that's I don't think been seen in movies before because it's a it's a sort of hick town where the people are sort of there. It's full of old people um, really dying. I mean, disintegrating literally physically before your eyes who hate hippies. And they identify these, the, this couple and their friend who, who arrive in town as, as hippies from the city and do everything they can to make their lives miserable. Are you uh, passing through? No, we just moved here. We're new in town. Oh, more refugees from urban blight, eh? <laughs> well, we bought the old Bishop Place. Oh. Who'd you deal with, old Harold? No, Harold's gone to Florida. It was an agent that showed me the place. Why? He tell you the stories about Abigail Bishop drowning, 1880 and all that? Abigail never got to wear that wedding dress. Mr. Dorker. She drowned in the cove behind her house. <laughs> Your house, I mean. Never found her body. The legend is that she's still alive. Some say she's a vampire. And perhaps it relates to, we don't, we never know what the disease that is eating them up is. We never know if the ghosts are real or false. We never know if people actually die in the movie. We think they do. It could all be taking place in the heads of this woman, Jessica, who has just emerged from a mental institution and is having a great deal of trouble differentiating fantasy and reality. You know, it's interesting because for a lot of rich people who live in New York, Connecticut is the place you go to get well. Sometimes it's a place you literally go to get well, like Silver Hill, or you get a country house, as in a film Ileana doesn't mention, was shot in Vermont, but Beetlejuice, where you also, your dream house, it turns out to be a haunted house. And I think that the fact that these are bloody, disturbing, horrible movies set in Connecticut, that it's sort of an oxymoron, right? You're not supposed to think of Connecticut with blood and ambiguity and racism and all the other horrible things that are bursting up from the soil. Well, I wonder if that's true, Ileana, or whether this is kind of an extension of The Swimmer, of The Ice Storm, Far From Heaven, Revolutionary Road. These are movies that you talk about in the book that are often the work also of very high-end novelists, fiction writers, except for Far From Heaven, but are about the fact that behind the beautiful facade, there lies quite a bit of malice and dysfunction. And so well, maybe at a certain point, it's a much shorter trip to the diving board that leads to horror. 
I mean, there. my interesting observation in writing the book is that houses are very central to Connecticut cinema. A house mm. in Christmas in Connecticut is central to Barbara Stanwyck's transformation in Blandings. You know, it's it's a house. But then as we get into these horror films, interestingly, in the early films, it's usually the woman, Myrna Loy, you know, they the woman wants to move to Connecticut or they want to move, you know, the it, but suddenly you have in both the Stepford Wives and Let's Scare Jessica to Death, it is the man who has, without the woman's knowledge or permission, has purchased a house in Connecticut and then he's lured his wife from you know from from new york to connecticut and once she's in connecticut she's slowly driven crazy now i'm just going to throw that out there i don't know if but if there is something to that but i noticed that the pattern of this i said oh that's interesting in all these horror movies now it's the man who somehow is you know gotten his wife out alone out in the country and you don't really know if if specifically in let's scare jessica to death has the man made some you know pact with the devil that he's he's got his wife out in a out in this house and he's slowly driving her mad so again you have that this idea that you get out of the rat race only to discover more turmoil in the country and now there's no going back to the city Okay, and Revolutionary Road, I just want to say that is Let's Scare Jessica to Death and those other films. You're absolutely right. The seeds of the horror film are in Richard Yates's novel and in that vision that's captured, I think, very beautifully in the film by Sam Mendes. Okay, very much in the spirit of the book, we are now going to each recommend a movie or two, ideally ones that might not have come up or might not have been discussed fully. So, David, why don't you go first? Sure. Um, The film I'm going to recommend is discussed by Ileana in her book. It's called Rachel Getting Married. It was directed by Jonathan Demme from a script by uh, Jenny Lumet. And uh, I, I, I hesitated when I said script because a lot of the film is improvised with Jenny Lumet present on the set. I think that it's the it's it's a fat, fascinating to look at in light of uh, the re-release, the A24 re-release of the greatest concert film of all time. Apologies to Martin Scorsese and The Last Waltz, and that is Stop Making Sense, because it presents a a very very grim portrait of a of a lost young woman in a tragic suburban setting. She has gotten out of uh, rehab. She is uh, in very, very bad shape. A child has died as as a result of her addictions. It is everything that we've talked about on our show about the underbelly of suburbia. And yet Jonathan Demme brings to it this teeming, improvisatory, multicultural, multiracial vision of paradise, whereby the end of the film, the, the last few minutes of the film, the last 15, 20, 30 minutes of the film is all music, is all celebratory music that in a way is to show us the transcendent power of art amid the the wreckage of society as as represented by Connecticut. It's an extraordinary film. Anne Hathaway has has never been better. I I could not recommend it more highly. Jonathan Demme's Rachel Getting Married. All right. uh, Ileana Douglas, what are you going to recommend? I'm going to recommend, because you, you need to see them together, both Gentleman's Agreement and Boomerang, truly Connecticut stories. 
gentleman's agreement was the one that won all the awards and yet it couldn't have been made without Boomerang. It was Ilya Kazan's first sort of attempts at neorealism, which later that style of filmmaking, you know, broke open and he did on the waterfront. But both of these films are truly Connecticut stories incredibly acted there's so many uh you know it involves the group theater Connecticut filmed in uh on location in Stamford gentlemen's agreement uh, about Darien and it's so I mean we sort of put poo-poo kind of message films but both of these films are uh I think say so much about bigotry racism that even nice people have these bad feelings I I, I think they're both just incredibly important films to re to rewatch. So I'm going to recommend two films very quickly, all both released in the same year. And Edelstein is probably going to yell at me about both of them, but we'll see what happens. Oh dear. Uh, the, oh dear. <laughs> no, I, the, the listeners count on this. That's part of the dynamic. The first one is called Martha, Martha Marcy, May Marlene. It is. Oh, Lord. Uh, I knew it. I knew you were going to get mad. It is, I liked it up to the ending. Okay. You have to the warn end, people. It's not a satisfying movie. It might not be a satisfying ending if you, if you require strong resolutions. It is, I think the first film uh, starring Elizabeth Olsen, and I have a little bit of an Elizabeth Olsen thing. I am I'm frank about that. She's, she's great. And she's, she's really great. good in this, and it's about a woman who sort of gets out of a cult and is still uh, suffering delusions and paranoia. And she does go to the cult is in the Catskill Mountains, but she goes to her sister's house, which is on a lake in Connecticut. And by the way, by the way, I'm going to interrupt you here, Colin. <laughs> I knew uh, you we would. We haven't talked. We didn't talk about about real estate pornography, but I wanted that house. Uh, I yeah. wanted that lake. There are parts of you know Litchfield County that don't get covered in movies, but real estate porn is such a big part of the appeal <laughs> of, of Connecticut in a, in in a, for a certain kind of person, and uh, it's represented in the movies by houses like the one in in Marcy, Marlene, Marlena, Mar Marcy, Mar. <laughs> Close enough. Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene. By the way, the young, unheralded Julia Garner appears in it, much later to do very amazing things. And the young Christopher Abbott, also, I think, unheralded and now in New York doing that uh, John Patrick Shanley show with, uh, what's her name? Audrey Garner. What's her name? I can't think of her name. Aubrey. Which I have tickets for. Yeah. You got tickets for it? Oh, wow. I got a tickets for it. Yeah. So Aubrey Plaza, that's her name. So, and then the other one, and Edelstein's going to yell about this one too, is it called Another Earth? It is filmed in West Haven, and, and it is set in West Haven, West Haven and New Haven. It's sort of an astronomy, sci-fi, alternative universe. It's hard to describe, but it's a very- I moody. like Another Earth. I'm, like? Not, okay. I'm not disagreeing with you at all. Okay. And, and particularly if you like Britt Marling, who's, I think, coming back to series television pretty soon with something. She's, she's going to be on streaming TV in, in a month or so. It's just terrific. It'd be very hard to describe, but it is. it has a very strong West Haven slash New Haven milieu. So uh, if you if you like that kind of thing. But you have to be a little bit of patient, a little bit patient with it. You got to, it's moody and you got to let it unfold. All right. So the good news is that Ileana yes. and I will be at the Kate on Wednesday, November 15th at 7 p.m. at the Catherine Hepburn Cultural Arts Center in Old Saybrook, better known as the Kate. Tickets are now available at thekate.org. All right. Ileana Douglas's new book is Connecticut in the movies from dream houses to dark suburbia. Get the book. David Edelstein is America's greatest living film critic and soon to be accepting his Academy Award for Matt Hatters, his movie set in Danbury during the hat industry. All right, thanks for listening, and we'll be back with more. Talk about Torrington, Vernon, 
Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.